the Requiem Metal Podcast, episode 84, Diano Aramaidi. heard running free and i am running free and this is the requiem metal podcast i'm mark and i am jason and we are looking at uh the diano years of iron maiden yes well uh, iron maiden's one of those bands that everybody i would imagine that listens to this podcast or everybody in general like my parents know who iron maiden are sure yeah. but to try to find a, a way to approach i guess these guys that isn't completely redundant yeah and i mean you know they've become sort of a cultural um touchstone i guess of, of the heavy metal genre and i mean i know mm-hmm. like my students are totally aware of iron maiden you know yeah. because of guitar hero and i think just because of the the generational influences that they've had you know just I mean, their kind of their touring rep you know uh i mean they're that's that's they're like a live band that's the that's the way to see iron maiden they've been doing it for you know since like 1979 
And I mean, I almost see them in a weird sort of sense now that, that there's sort of become in the last, I think, 10 years, almost an accessibility to, to sort of like the older style of, of heavy metal. You mm-hmm. know? I mean, I think starting with like Black Sabbath reunions and, and things like that, that there's there's almost a tameness now to Iron Maiden. You know, yeah. they, they've been declawed in a sense the same way that I think Rolling Stones kind of got declawed in like the, the late 80s, 90s, and then just sort of became like this band that defines kind of the baby boom generation or something yeah. i think iron maiden in the same sense will define kind of like the gen x as we like approach our 30s and 40s i mean i could see you know people that never would have listened to iron maiden in the 80s being excited about going to like these big spectacle concerts now yeah iron maiden is putting on well, especially since yeah brave new world came out and dickinson got reunited with yeah. the band and i mean that that's kind of i think people always always kind of see that as you know like that's the the quintessential main lineup you know everything from on uh uh number of the beast yeah that's like you know the quintessential record but i think a lot of people and i was actually when i was getting back into maiden in the early 90s like the diano stuff is what really kind of grabbed me because it was it was raw but it was technical and it was like you know it was the genesis of everything that i you know come to know after that and i mean my first my first iron maiden record was number of the beast used that i got at the record store that mark and i eventually you know ended up working at and i think i got that sophomore year in high school but then the next thing i found used it, it was killers and mm-hmm. so you know i kind of grew up with a, that sort of appreciation of diano through through i guess the high school years a little bit and then near the end of high school the best in the beast uh kind of compilation came the two out disc boxer thing yeah. and you know the songs that i sort of globbed onto a lot i mean other than some of the the obvious you know dickinson choices were of course like phantom of the opera and iron maiden because there was like a primitive kind of cool kind mm-hmm. of aspect to them much the same way like a couple weeks ago when we were doing like Celtic Frost, you know, the way that some of those songs from Morbid Tales kind of have like a a cool primitiveness to them that, yeah. that's pretty pretty sweet, you know. And I think there's a charm to the Diano stuff in that it wasn't perfect, you know, it wasn't larger than life yet, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's still, it was still a little there, rougher you know? on the edges. It was a little bit more, they're a little bit more dangerous, <laughs> I think. Yeah. They oh, had that kind sure. of vibe, I mean, especially, and just visually, how like, you know, Diano looked like he was pulled out of like a, a British punk band. Oh, you sure. Know, the short haired dude with like, you know, no shirt on, leather pants and spikes. And then everybody else was, you know, decked out in these goofy, like, spandex outfits and stuff, too. It was, like, an interesting uh, Yeah, and I think it's weird, you know, a song like, you know, you mentioned the punk thing, and, and the song we just sort of listened to was almost like, you know, the same sort of, like, teen rebellion kind of angst that was yeah. going on throughout England. It in almost even 70s. has, like, a weird yeah. Alice Cooper vibe to it as well. Oh, it's for just, sure. It's just, like, know. anthemic. Well, and it was funny. I was just watching uh, some of these documentaries I was telling Mark about. I'm a, Sometimes when I'm bored, like, on a Saturday afternoon or whatever, even grading papers and stuff. I tend to watch VH1 Classic, and they seem to always rerun like all these different documentaries on, on hit, you know music history and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they had the punk one on yesterday, and uh, uh, Johnny Rotten. Uh, well, something crazy is going on. <laughs> uh, Johnny Rotten was talking about how one of the first songs to sort of grab him and, and pull him into like the the kind of rebellion form of thinking was i'm 18 from alice cooper and he mm-hmm. heard it playing in like a uh like a clothing store a music store or something like that and so it's interesting you mentioned in cooper you know because in a sense you know the, what was going on in england in the late 70s was this sort of you know the economy was in upheaval and you know the, the england was just sort of in, in a state of chaos in a way especially yeah. like london you know and same with new york in the in in the, the late 70s as well and that's why like you know ramones were doing what they did in new york and then the clash and, and sex pistols were doing their thing but at the same time not everyone 
vibed on punk, but yet they were still very disconnected as like a youth movement, you mm-hmm. know? And so I think bands like maybe Judas Priest, who, who are a little obviously ahead of Maiden, you know, but like this whole new wave of British heavy metal that, that Maiden and Angel Witch and some of these bands Diamond are going to ride, yeah. ride in on, you know, I think was a different form of sort of teenage rebellion, you mm-hmm. know, than what punk was offering. You know, it was obviously coming out of more of the, I guess, Thin Lizzy you know, kind of. Uh, One is more of. Aspect. I mean, it, it, <laughs> I don't think you can ever look at an Iron Maiden song that's like some kind of like social revolt song. Yeah, it's all way more just kind of like uh, you know get lost in in the music, not not some kind of like you know social change kind of mm-hmm. vehicle at all. Yeah, and so Running Free is you know I mean he's talking about hanging out at the disco hall and you know different things like that. Yeah. And I was actually telling Mark about this weird phenomena that I saw in one of the documentaries, and, and Mark hadn't heard of this before, and something that was happening at the the dance halls, the disco halls and stuff where, where, you know, sometimes live bands would play, but other times it would just be like a jukebox or whatever, is they would have these, like, cardboard air guitar contests that were going on in the late 70s. And and I don't know, you know, Iron Maiden was sort of wrapped into that in a weird way um, because those people were, like, metalheads that had no, like, outlet for anything. And then I think this whole new wave of British heavy metal kind of became the outlet. You know, it was Mm -hmm. like people, you know, like a lost tribe searching for like leadership and all of a sudden like maiden and diamond head, like were their like leaders, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, cause I think when Judas priest, you know, got the ball rolling and I think got people thinking about this new sort of twin lead melodies, this, this different style of metal than what say Sabbath or purple had offered in the, mm-hmm. in the early seventies. And, and, and maiden, I think sees that, that sort of Z geist of the era, you know, these kids didn't want like stripped down punk, but they they didn't mind the stripped down rawness that Maiden was offering because there was a youthful energy to it, like punk had, mm-hmm. but it had more dynamics to it, more musicianship, and it still had that sort of metal attitude that Judas Priest was starting to like create with like the the clothing and the the, the metal studs, leather and spikes, all that kind and all of that. stuff, you know. And here, yeah, Steve Harris was pulling in a lot of you know wishbone ash and. You know, you're mentioning like some camel sounding yeah. stuff. A lot of you know, a lot of the prog stuff without it being sounding like Rush. Sure, like it sure. still had an edge. That's yep. that's kind of a big thing, I think. Yeah, and you know, you you mix the, the sort of Judas Priest, you know, uh, Hellbent for Leather kind of stripped down attitude with the musicianship of Wishbone Ash and Camel and things like that. The twin leads, you, and yeah, you, know, you get you know this this early Iron Maiden kind of sound. You know, so you know we we sort of have joked about how do you approach a band like Iron Maiden. It's kind of like, you know, how do you approach Metallica? And that's, that's why we sort of avoided doing those particular bands because it's like everybody knows them. So and Yeah, like how Priest was. I mean, I don't think Priest, I mean, they're they're definitely, you know, kind of credited as one of the, the I guess, the the originators of the whole, you know, heavy metal sound from the from the seventies, but they're less they're lesser known, I think, in the States. Yeah, except for like four songs. You know, yeah. like the same four songs that always get in rotation. But they know? I mean the way their their kind of career started out was where I mean it's almost like classic rock and then we get to, to the more like uh I guess what we think of as is the kind of the quintessential heavy metal sound. Mm-hmm. And then we get all the slow down you know, more biker rock, ACDC-ish stuff. Sure. But Maiden, their their trajectory never really wavered until we hit the Blaze Bailey era, and then that's purely on a vocal level mm-hmm. they wavered. But the, as far as like their, they've never like had a commercial record. They've never had radio play. No, they've they've basically garnered their rep- uh, reputation just by touring their asses off for, yeah. for years and years and years. I mean, I think I think they kind of form formulated in a way the model that like Metallica would follow in the eighties. Yeah. 
I mean, Metallica never did a video until one in 88, but by then they had such a mass cult following. You yeah, know? and basically no radio play either. And I mean, I know that Maiden got some airplay, you know, with like Number of the Beast and, and The Trooper and a couple other songs here and there, but it wasn't in mainstream, you know, uh, it was on like Headbangers Ball and things like that, you know. Or yeah, it was like it was like niche radio shows. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, you know, top 40 yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, and I mean, they released singles, but they were just, you know. I mean, they did well and like Prowler went in at uh, number one. Oh really? Yeah, in, in, in the, the UK. UK. Yeah. Okay, so they were huge in the UK, but as far as like they didn't really until they started touring, uh, you know, Europe and the States is when they exploded. Well, the American market was such a bizarre market in the late seventies, early eighties. You know, you had the sort of disco thing that was kind of going on, mm-hmm. and I think only bands that were making just the most like huge records possible, like what ACDC Back in Black or, you know, Ozzy Osbourne Blizzard of Oz in 1980. Yeah. Those are the only kind of like harder records that were even going to like penetrate the market. But, you know, as, as legend goes, most people know this already, but, you know, it really wasn't until Quiet Riot in 83 that, that the whole like American market kind of got cracked for the first time by like a legitimate I guess legitimate metal band. Yeah, you know, I mean, Randy Rhodes started out in Quiet Riot, so that gives him some legitimacy, I guess. But you know what I mean. So the American market was hard, and I think you're right. Until Maiden kind of toured the world a few times and, and sort mm-hmm. of started to make this live reputation. And I think you know, not to talk about Dickinson, but I think when he gets involved, he's able to take them to that next level, especially with the tours and the. Oh yeah, live when him and yeah, him and Nick McBrain kind of like that. That's kind of like that. That's the quintessential lineup, right sure, there. Sure. And going, getting back to the debut record where we're at, you know, I mean, I guess Steve Harris is is the main guy. The bass player wrote almost all the songs lyrically and musically. Yeah, yeah, I did a little bit of lyrics uh, on the first record, but these, uh, all these songs that we're hearing now have been they were knocked around for five or six years previously, and all these different incarnations. I mean, at this point, we think of this as, or a lot of people, or at least maybe this was just me before I did a lot of you know like research and made like over the years but I always thought that was like okay that's probably the first lineup was the first record and there was like I mean you look at the There's rest like of the Beast Box sets in the band before this they had like four or five drummers like four vocalists uh, I mean guitar players they went through like crazy so basically like Steve Harris was the only like fixture mm-hmm. throughout that entire thing up until this point where we've got I think it was in 78 was it 78 77, 78, that Diano and Murray and, and everybody Murray came back coming. in. And, and Murray's, got, uh, Murray's the guitar player, and then the other guitar player who's only on this record is... Dennis uh, Stratton. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he's just on... The, he was with him for a little bit, a little while, but he was always literally about... Uh, he wanted to go more in, like, a traditional rock, blues rock direction. And Which is what, sort of what was big at the time. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, outside of Judas Priest, no one else was doing anything remotely like this, and it was fairly dangerous. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Black Sabbath was was really kind of dying, you know, in the late seventies. You know, when they fired Ozzy, and they really had no future. Ah, uh, they, they put out some good deal records, but still, well, no, at no. The time. Well, Heaven and Hell doesn't come out till eighty. But what I'm saying is, yeah. like, when Maiden is trying to like get their sound together, mm-hmm. you know, it, it didn't really look like. Well, and they were playing. I mean, the the. Uh, People should really go seek out. It's called uh, Iron Maiden: The, the Early Days Early, yeah. uh, documentary. And actually, the um, I think there's a part two of it. What the hell was that on? Live after death. They just put a DVD out a couple years ago, and that's oh, got right. the part two of it. Um, but that uh, the early days. I mean, they've even got like uh, 
you look at uh, Steve Harris has his old journals. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, we played the cart and horse. We got five dollars. But it, but they kept they had he had this work ethic to where I mean he was a really good entrepreneur where he was like, okay, all this money goes back into the stage show. Like he'd buy like bubble machines and uh, smoke machines. He he put he's in, Harris is the one that designed the logo, which is probably one of the best. Oh sure, you know band logos ever. Well, heck, we used it for our cross country t shirts. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it's so such a sweet iconic logo. Yeah. But yeah, they were slowly kind of amping up the theatricality and. Uh, and the the big show they did in God, where the hell was that? I think it was in Germany. It was with Kiss. Mm-hmm. They really kind of like blew them up in Europe. Because they probably gave Kiss a run for their money in terms of and, stage shows. Well, Kiss yeah. actually they would flip flop headlining because Kiss, Kiss would actually allow yeah, that because well because the the crowd was so like wow. into Maiden and the the stage shows they put on were like unbelievable as far as energy and I can't you know, see Gene Simmons agreeing to that. That's kind of odd. Yeah, he's a businessman, I guess. Yeah. yeah, what what the people want, I guess. Yeah, so. but I, yeah, I definitely check out that documentary because it's it goes you know way it goes into everything. They interview almost you know everybody that had ever been associated with with Maiden in any kind of like Doug Sampson, the previous drummer, and and what and what Mark was saying earlier too is and if you get it your hands on that uh, really nice. The, you got to get the box set version of Best of the Beast because it's got the sweet sort the of family tree. Family tree. <laughs> that thing will they'll, they'll make your head hurt. There's just so many, you know, just different variations and, and people kind of coming in and out of the band. Yeah. Especially prior to. Well, the yeah, that record. even comes in. They have it split off to where Adrian Smith comes in from Urchin and they go back to the back history sure. of all that stuff. And it's. Well, and you got Samson doing their thing at this Bruce, time. Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> Bruce is kind of in the scene, but he's doing something different, you know? Yeah, which their manager at the time uh, was a Rod Smallwood. He didn't want Bruce in the band because he thought he was a douche, basically. Hmm. You know, what the hell kind of name is Bruce Bruce? And at the time in Samson, Bruce Dickinson was wearing almost like this uh, like uh, Roman kind of like garb. And oh, yeah, it was yeah. just ridiculous and over yeah, the top. The Samson like covers bottom are a leather kind jacket of weird and, S&M-y kind yeah. of weird stuff, you know, yeah, coupled so with like WWF wrestling outfits, you know. He got him a leather jacket and told him to, uh, you know, that was, you know, what's your real name? What's your surname? Yeah. Dickinson. Okay, that's what you're yeah, That'll work. Yeah. <laughs> Now, the production on this first Iron Maiden, you know, Harris and those guys weren't terribly, you know, they're they're not thrilled about how it sounds. This is the only Maiden record, to my knowledge. Were any of the later ones without Martin Birch? Yeah, well, Martin Birch did everything up until Fear of the Dark. Okay, so but, he uh, did the, the Will classic Malone, era, I yeah, guess. Yeah, Will Malone uh, produced this, and according to everything I've read, he was basically just sitting there, like, reading and smoking, and how, how does that take? Eh, it's okay. So basically, sure. the, the guys in Maiden produced the record for all intents and purposes. <laughs> but, and I, I really love the raw kind of sound of it. Yeah, I... I I've never had any problems with it. Now we might we're Mark and I are debating. We haven't decided yet. We might play a, a Soundhouse tapes version, which um, the Soundhouse tapes were the the original recordings of some of these songs. It's their, correct? Yeah, their first demos. They went into uh, to record those, and they they actually they're recording on two inch tape, so they probably would have sounded good. But all they had was like the basically like their version, their little cassette tape, uh-huh. and uh, they went in a couple weeks later to try to pay for the actual two-inch tape to own. Somebody had taped over it. Right? Yeah, it had already been taped over, so the, this stuff, I think, is a little more punchy, because it's just on that little, you know, yeah. that cassette tape, but... Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, that's kind of like uh, the holy grail of Iron Maiden stuff, which has, it was reissued, I think, in the mid-90s on CD, but it hasn't been since, except on the Best of the Beast, they have two you tracks. Get a couple t- and that's where I, it's funny, because I was telling Mark that I, I, for a long time, got used to the Soundhouse tape version of Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden, mm-hmm. and so then when I finally bought this record, I kind of was like, what's wrong with this song? And I didn't really well, realize the, at the time. Yeah, the version you've got is the remaster that's remastered even different from like the Castle versions that I've got from the 90s. Yeah, these were the ones that were remastered in the late 90s i do believe uh yeah yep 
so and it's the the raw <laughs> raw power um, remasters that you can't you know with special multimedia you know videos and stuff which yeah. in 98 was probably like awesome but now it's like with YouTube and everything you know well it's kind of sucks that you have to pop in a CD-ROM to be able to listen to the extra tracks yeah. and stuff too so but oh well and yeah. then all the old castle versions have like you know women in uniform all the singles are put on the second the disc, really cool bonus nice. tracks yeah bonus tracks which that was their first video women in uniform oh was it yeah <laughs> And um, we're gonna get to uh, we're gonna get to uh, uh, some more songs from from this first record. Um, we're gonna start with Prowler, which was their first single, correct? Yep, and an opener to the record. Yeah, and Prowler, you know, has like it's definitely to me. I hear this sort of speedier, sort of thin Lizzy kind of. It's thing. pretty straightforward song. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you can hear the Wishbone Ash isms, and and I even pull out a, another guy, Irish guy by the name of Rory Gallagher, who was in a band called Taste, and um, the guy that you heard. Uh, last week, talking with Mark and I in the MC5 show, um, he turned both Mark and I on to mm-hmm. Rory Gallagher stuff. And I think Diano he, he brings more of that kind of approach than than like you know the the Halfords or the more falsetto vocal, yeah, yeah. heavy metal, or even like the the approach Ozzy had, you know. Sure. And I think the other thing we should say that I was pointing out to Mark before we we started was I feel like the way Harris writes songs, and, and you'll hear it. Um, I don't know. You'll hear it a little bit in Remember Tomorrow, which is a song after Prowler, is he has almost like a classical music sort of style that he's sort of making. And you said that Harris really wanted Maiden to be like almost a prog rock band. Mm-hmm. But it was like the other guys were sort of challenging him to not be that. And so that's kind of that cool dynamic that always well, existed. Yeah, it was the, thing, the weird thing is that he somehow channeled prog rock into what Maiden ended up being. And in all intents and purposes, Maiden is real proggy, but sure. it's not the real noodly, like overly like yes Kind sure. Of stuff, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it always has its roots in like heavy metal, you know, yeah. and um, you know, whereas like Dream Theater gets a little like too out there and stuff, and yes, and some of these bands, you know, even like even like Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner as prog as a song like that will become. I, there's something there's that, that makes there's it the, different. There's the gallop. There's always this this force kind of like pushing it forward. Yeah. I think that a lot of those other bands are lacking. I mean, I guess it's as proggy as Metallica gets on Injustice for All. You know, I mean, if you yeah. if you consider that prog rock, then I guess maybe prog just has no, a. No. I think it just has bad connotations. Yeah. The word the word does because I think it, like anything, there's good prog and there's bad prog. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just doesn't matter. So, but we're, so we're gonna hear Prowler and then uh, Remember Tomorrow, Transylvania, and Sanctuary. Um, what uh, what you know. Besides Prowler, I mean, what made you choose these three songs? I well, guess, after remember this? tomorrow is kind of like a, you know one of their just to show the variation of the record. If people don't have this record, I, I would hope everybody does. But yeah. <laughs> if not, uh, no. But remember tomorrow is kind of like a it, it's a ballad, but it's a ballad through the eyes of Maiden, which has never been syrupy, sweet, romantic mm-hmm. ballads by any by any means. But it show it shows like the more delicate, I think, side of their songwriting. And I hear things like I was pointing out to you things like uh, that you heard on Sin After Sin and Sad Wings of Destiny, Priest, mm-hmm. you know, like Dreamer Deceiver. And um, uh, what's the other tune that uh, Beyond the Realms of Death? Beyond the Realms of Death that has that same sort of like like still dark, morbid kind of sad ballad. To yeah, it. you know, it's not like a, a happy, it's, sappy love ballad. Yeah, more like operatic, like you know, lost lover. Yeah, <laughs> kind yeah. of thing. But usually that that never makes it into any of the lyrics. Yeah, and those classical melodies sort of build through it. You know, mm-hmm. even though it's super melodic, it's still pretty heavy. You know, and then Transylvania is one of their uh, their instrumentals. Instrumentals, which yeah. yeah, Steve Harris wrote as he was walking home drunk from a bar, and he had to run home so he could remember the lines because he was playing them back and forth. Oh, that's funny. Stuff, so. That's funny. And this to me is like very you know. Even though 
Iron Maiden has like punk elements to it, especially like running free and, and some of the attitude of Diano and stuff. This is clearly a very anti-punk thing to do. I mean, to write an instrumental. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, just to show off in a way. But it's just, it's just as punchy and it's probably one of the faster songs on, oh, absolutely. on the record. It's some of the, some of the, like the Clive Bird is probably best, best, uh, like drumming. I have to think. On well, the this record. and Genghis Khan are the two yeah. instrumentals we're going to be playing on the show and they're probably his, his best kind of. And they're one, drumming. I think they play Transylvania occasionally live, but I don't remember the last time they have. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm remiss in that I've never seen Iron Maiden live. I've, I've had a couple of chances. And I've, just I've even of, seen with Blaze Bailey once. Yeah. And they were, they were good then, too. Well, I, I'm sure, <laughs> you know, because one guy can't bring the whole band down. Yeah, and Maybe. Brave New World Tour. But I haven't seen them since, which is kind of a bummer. Yeah, we'll go next time. Mark For Randall, sure. So, cool. All right. And so, we're going to sleaze it out with Sanctuary. Oh, yeah. And yeah, so. and we'll talk more about Sanctuary when we come back. So enjoy Prowler, Remember Tomorrow, Transylvania, and Sanctuary.
that was Sanctuary, Transylvania, Remember Tomorrow, and Prowler. And uh, Sanctuary has a, just a, a nice, dirty rock vibe to it, you know, almost like uh, coming I mean, out of like the Detroit, the garage rock era or something like that. Yeah, it's like it's a super simple riff, but it's it makes you want to like get up and start running around. Sure, it, it has the same kind of vibe as like Wicker Man, you know, yeah. like they later on do on Brave New World. It's got that kind of like sleazy kind of like hard rock biker kind of vibe well, to it. Yeah, I hear like a lot of Hellbent for Leather, you know? Yeah. That kind of, you know, straightforward approach that Priest had was sort of like perfecting right around the era mm-hmm. that this, this record came out, you know? Plus, Judas Priest stole the cop siren idea on Breaking <laughs> the Law, so kind of cool. Uh, but we're going to kind of wrap things up with, with the debut record coming up here. Um, and in a way, I guess, uh, for me, outside of maybe Remember Tomorrow, which is, I think, one of the, the great kind of ballads that Iron Maiden never wrote. And mm-hmm. I have a fond memory of it as well because one of the first uh, albums I had to review for uh, Eclipse when I first you know started writing was A Call to Arms where Opeth does the cover of Remember Tomorrow. <laughs> which is, we did play, actually, uh, when we did those two-part podcasts oh, that's with right, Opeth, yeah. so, with Chris. But, um, you know, these are kind of the my the, probably the two most famous tracks on the record, in a way, Famine of the Opera and the title track, Iron Maiden. Um, at least they're the two most forward-thinking, in a way. I mean, yeah. this really informs you where the band's going to go in terms of, like, defining heavy metal in the early 80s. Well, know? yeah, and I mean, a weird, I think a unique part of Phantom of the Opera was that the even if there's no vocals, if you took the vocal track off, you could still hear the, the lyrics basically through the guitar and the bass mm-hmm. lines. It's yeah. all written right out there, and it's all in unison almost. And this is very. This is probably the proggiest that, that Harris got on probably these first two records in general, yeah. I would say. It's kind of the precursor to Rhyming Ancient Mariner, really. Yeah, for sure. And, and you hear uh, the precursor of really the sort of the ultimate Metallica thrash riff yeah is is you know deeply embedded in the song oh you know, totally I think if you took this song and probably like Am I Evil Diamond Head and you kind of put those two together you really get where Metallica is kind of coming from especially mm-hmm. in, you know with Seek and Destroy and some of the Kill em All type stuff oh back when you know when Cliff Burton was in the band you could hear the bass yeah for sure <laughs> yeah no doubt so and this is definitely one of my definitely one of my favorite tracks and one I'm sure most of you are intimately familiar with I mean there's probably not many people that have it's usually in their, the yeah, in their repertoire no matter when they play or I mean if I own like four or five live records and it's on a couple <laughs> yeah, of those at least it's on most of them yeah and that a song that they almost always have to play uh, usually the show closer yeah very yeah. few bands have a great namesake song uh, you know and, and they do you know I mean S-Fix yeah. has one yeah uh, <laughs> trying to think oh well, there's there's a ton but um Oh, None that hold up like like this song though. Um, oh, just there's a show we just did that another band had. You know, uh, there's, there's Metal Storm face the Slayer from Show No Mercy. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's there's a few. Uh, I'm sure we'll if we think of some, we will. Ones, but. but we're gonna play the Soundhouse version of this, the uh, the original kind of recording of Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden, and um, with no backing vocals. Yeah, very punchy. I mean, yeah, that's all you can say about this song. It's 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 very in your face. You know. Um, I don't know. It, it, to me, it's like this and Dissident Aggressor were like from Priest right around this time were like the like right there, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of just super punchy, super like right in your face, Exciter, things like that. I mean, there weren't oh, yeah. too many songs that were like 
you know, yeah, if I would have heard those free, as a kid, I would have like know? it would have blown my mind. Oh yeah, in the late seventies, early eighties, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there was nothing like it, you know, until like Accept comes out with like Fast as a Shark and you know, so yeah. that where it starts getting a lot more, you know, speedier. And then we're gonna sort of gravitate onto the second record, which is the first Martin Birch production, and features, you know, in my mind, maybe the most iconic uh, Maiden cover. I mean, I think this was <laughs> the the T-shirt of the Iron Maiden era, you know, and, of killers, yeah. Um, probably this and Number of the Beast, and I mean, I don't know. I mean, they're all so iconic. I mean, Power Slave. Power Slave is the I've got ones a Power I saw. Slave mug, I know? saw the most of. I think growing up was everybody. Their Power Slave stuff everywhere. Yeah, and that was the biggest tour they ever did, so that yeah. well, that would make sense. But I guess like Killers is just so simple. You know, there's not mm-hmm. like you know Power Slave and Somewhere in Time and some of that. That's where like um, Derek Riggs is getting so like involved with his artwork. And, and well, Killers me, is the first one he actually he actually painted specifically for me. For okay. they were the first record the. The cover was just something he already had done that they liked. Gotcha. And they pulled out, and then Eddie kind of, you know, kind of like formed from that original kind of early, early uh, painting. And I think that maybe that's why it's so iconic is because it is the first like the first feeling you get of like the real Eddie. Yeah. You know, and well, I mean, the and, and from a the smile, it's all a marketing right there. standpoint. Like yeah. this was a, a brilliant first move on their part is to have the band kind of steps back a little bit as far as them being in the spotlight, and it's Eddie who is yeah. who's kind of the 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 face of the band. And I don't, I can't think of any other band that's really done it to that. Not to extent. Maiden's level. I mean, no. Megadeth came close with with the. But Megadeth came out after the fact. Absolutely. I th- I saw, oh, I, I know what you're saying. So you know, before this, I mean, Priest had like the the, the Steel Eagle thing, but it, they didn't really exploit yeah. it to the extent that I mean, Eddie's on every Iron Maiden cover. Yeah, I can't think of anything like this. You know, um, maybe Led Zeppelin with the uh, not necessarily the balloon, but the the sort of angel like winged. Yeah, thing that they had some, but it was never. But it iconic, wasn't. A, it wasn't a know? character. Yeah, like you know, Eddie like is actually he, he's he he's almost the. Um, I mean, basically, well, he's it's the mascot. It's, yeah, it's know? like, but every cover is like him going through a progression too. It's not just random. Sure, sure, and he's he's def, he's representing the theme of the album, which of course, mm-hmm. Killers is all about the famous killers throughout history. You know, so. Um, yeah, great. You know, great record. This is, you know, you said that a lot of people slag this record as being not as good as the first. And, yeah. you know, I guess there is some filler songs on here. Songs Cause that the, aren't I mean, memorable. the first record, I had a hard time omitting certain songs. Oh, yeah. And, all, uh, this one, I had no problem omitting yeah, certain songs. There's like five songs you think of when you think of Killers. Yeah. You know, I mean, Wrathchild, which we're going to play first, um, the title track. You know, Murders in the Room Arc, which we, we cut because yeah, a lot of people have heard that and. I don't know. You just gotta just get, get to the taste point. thing. Well, sure. I, I've heard it a million times too, so I was yeah. trying to pull out some other stuff. And um, yeah, we're gonna hear uh, Wrathchild, which is probably one of my favorite songs they've ever done. Sure. Really. It's it's it kind of encapsulates that the dangerous vibe off the first the first record. A little bit of the biker stuff. It's it's stripped down and simple, but just catchy and anthemic as well. Yeah, and I wonder how much influence like Motorhead had on them because it's it's there sometimes in like the attitude that Diano has a little bit. You know, like you mentioned, yeah. biker vibe to it. But you know, I mean, I'm sure everybody was probably like, influencing not, each other a little bit. Yeah, I don't know how how many times like. Uh, well, I know like Angel, which they were like contemporaries with sure. with Maiden, sure. just playing these tiny little bar, you know, like the Cart and Horse and all these other tiny little bars that they used to play. Yeah. I'm sure it was. You know they're aware of each other, but I don't know how much influence was directly there. I hear a lot of Angel Witch on the title track, Killers. Mm-hmm. You know, like that. I hear a ton of Angel Witch kind of stuff there, but you know, I don't. 
yeah, I don't know. You're you're right. You know, it's kind of all intermittently mixed. And then we're gonna sort of end with uh, the Genghis Khan, the instrumental we mentioned before, which uh, probably the fastest drumming that uh, Maiden had done thus far, and probably mm-hmm. the fastest drumming of anyone outside of Priest and Maiden or uh, Priest and Motorhead. You know, yeah. the speed and velocity. So, but uh, all right, enjoy the uh, the epic. Phantom of the Opera, Iron Maiden, the Soundhouse tape version, Wrathchild, and Genghis Khan.
Genghis Khan, Wrathchild, the Soundhouse tape version of Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden, and then Phantom of the Opera. And uh, we're going to close things out here with a, a trio of tunes, all very different from each other. Yeah, we're going to have uh, Prodigal Son, their, their kind of uh, version, of their answer to Remember Tomorrow, kind of yeah. for this one, which is it reminds, has elements of uh, like what Opeth would go on to yeah, as far as structure. I heard, uh, I heard Porcupine Tree oh, from yeah. the Stupid Dreams yeah. record. Uh, even I hear a lot of camel, especially in the vocal harmonies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stuff that like and this is, Andy Latimer would do. Yeah, this is one that Diano's really kind of stretching his his voice as well. I mean, his his, his probably most like you know beautiful. <laughs> and we should say for so, the for those people that don't know the story. I mean, ultimately, what sort of happened with Diano is that he you know he was kind of cracking on tour a little bit. He couldn't handle like the he's got really withdrawn, and uh, I guess he had a little bit of uh, some cocaine and alcohol issues too but the whole thing was more him being withdrawn yeah and that's this is like when they were getting huge like mm-hmm. they were touring all over the place and just becoming huge and that's when you know um it's based on the drummer's name nico mcbrain oh, oh no clive, clive, clive burr and the next record he starts kind of doing the same thing it's like you used to playing these tiny little gigs and then it starts exploding to like you sure. know playing arenas and stuff yeah and uh diano just wasn't up to it and uh even to this day diano says that dickinson's that he's the ultimate which it's kind of hard to argue with yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> but but he said he has no qualms of ever quitting the band. Yeah, I mean he knew that he probably couldn't have gone to the next level. Yeah, you know, and Dickinson was the guy that was gonna you know take him to that next phase and stuff. So, you know, there's no you know big dramatic story of you know fist fights or anything like that. It was just a certain you know essentially they knew they had to go in a different direction. And well, and, and Steve Harris is a pretty straight guy. He'll come right out and like. This this isn't working. Like he he gave both of um, you know the drummer and and Bandiano like okay here's a couple months we're gonna take some time off. If you figure things out, if you want to yeah. come back, cool. If not, we need to move on because this is you know he's you know single focused Iron Maiden. Sure, yeah. I mean he kind of lives his whole life you know around Iron Maiden. You know, he's equivalent like Peter with Vader. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or Morgan from Marduk and yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, but uh, Prodigal Son, very cool tune, and then. Um, we're gonna go into Purgatory, which uh, has a great angular opening riff to it. Yeah, it's just, and that's this. I mean, these all these first two records that we kind of see like the genesis of some of the the go to Iron Maiden riffs, and mm-hmm. there'll be different variations on each one. But the the approach to those kind of songs, I think we see the the genesis on these two records. Sure, and then we're gonna end with my favorite. This is my favorite Diano song, and I don't know what the the element of it that I love so much but it's the title track Killers and uh, for some reason I just sort of fell in love with this song and yeah. it, it, to me Killer Behind You yeah Killer Behind <laughs> You it's, it's very catchy sing-along there's a sort of a build within it you know there's an imminence to it uh, I don't know it, it's like Phantom of the Opera when you take some of the the, the prog elements out it, it's 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 flows a little bit better I guess or mm-hmm. something but it has that same it's sort a little of little herky jerky yeah you know so um, very very cool and also has I, I noticed the quintessential Queensryche riff as well it's, it's sort of built in there but um, but anyways you know we hope uh, you've you know we hopefully gave you a different spin maybe you don't know some of the history of Diano or, or aren't as familiar with these or if records. you're turned off and I mean I, I know that was the case for me at first is I was like man I you know who's this isn't Dickinson you yeah know, what's going on in this but yeah and so many people are used to that you know we'll, we'll be doing our Blaze Bailey show uh, down the road <laughs> just kidding just just joking uh, there were some good songs then but not vocal performances yeah, yeah so but anyways let us know what you thought shoot us an email at requiempodcast at gmail.com check us out on iTunes leave us a comment uh, go to the website you know there's requiempodcast.com yeah, yeah we've got merchandise there's uh, there's metal card sets there's yeah. something else I want to try to figure or start out here is you know in these troubled times people can't necessarily donate money 
listening to the show. But what I'd, I'd like to propose is if you have extra CDs, huh. if you have CDs um, that you just, you know, you're ripping them and you don't want to have anymore, we're going to start the, the Requiem Library. Ooh. So we'll look look for the site and we'll have some, some information where you can uh, you can help us out there. And we're also approaching uh, episode 89 where we're going to start our um, top 12 greatest years of heavy metal history. Uh, so send us some of your feedback. A couple people have already given us some messages. We've mm-hmm. got a shout out for 1990 and a couple other years. Yeah. So let us know. So anyways, enjoy uh, Prodigal Son, Purgatory, and Killers. For Requiem Metal Podcast, I'm Jason. And I'm Mark. <laughs>